Hello and welcome to Fintech Impact. I'm your host, Jason Pereira. Today is the momentous occasion. It is episode number 300. So for those of you who stuck around for all of that, thank you. And uh, as a treat, I managed to secure, we'll call him the godfather of advisor technology in, uh, in, in the US. That's Joel Bruckenstein, president of Technology Tools for Today. Joel is a well-known consultant and writer and basically everything in the space. And I uh, brought him on the show to talk about his, his journey and how technology for advisors has changed over time. And with that, here's my interview with Joel. Joel, thanks for taking the time today. Hi, Jason. Thanks for having me and congratulations on your 300th episode. I just keep on talking and recording it and people keep on listening. So it works out quite well. All good. Excellent. So Joel Bruckenstein, tell us about what it is you do. What do I do? I spend most of my time right now on technology for advisors. You know, wealth tech has grown substantially over the years. And I guess at the beginning, I was more concentrated strictly on the independent RIA space. But now we we get a little bit into more enterprise stuff, a little bit on the insurance side, spend a lot of time consulting, spend a lot of time just looking at new products, speaking with advisors, and of course, the big T3 conference that we run every year. Yes, and we'll get to the conference towards the end. Because it is going to happen yet again this year in January. And it's what, the 30th, 20th anniversary? 30th anniversary? It is the 20th anniversary, yes. I don't need to prematurely date you, but congratulations <laughs> on that anniversary too. Okay. So uh, let's talk about how you got to where you are. Like, tell me about your journey. How'd you get into the advisor technology space in the first place? Well, actually, I started on Wall Street in, in 1980 on, uh, on the institutional side. I was doing institutional foreign exchange. We started uh, equity derivatives part of the business in the mid 90s. So I had to get all my licenses to run that. So I had all my securities licenses. And early on, we had a lot of folks who were working there that had 401ks and didn't know what they were doing. So I kind of started a side business consulting with them as an RIA. And they were my first clients. They were colleagues of mine. And in the late 90s, they wanted to move that office to London and consolidate and I didn't want to go. So I just spun out and stuck with the RIA. And when I did that, I realized that there wasn't a lot of good information on advisor technology for advisors. There was very little written about it. A lot of what was was sponsored by the company, so it wasn't really independent research. And I was just wondering why there wasn't kind of a consumer reports for advisor technology. And so uh, I decided to kind of start one. <laughs> so I wrote a book with a colleague uh, around 2000 that was published by Bloomberg Press. And uh, after that kind of advisor technology took over my life and I became more and more involved in tech and less and less involved with clients. And I eventually transitioned just to doing advisor tech. And that's what I've been doing for the last 20 some odd years. And you've been the most prominent name in the space. So uh, this is, I mean, first person I came across and you've done a lot with that. Besides the consulting, you published an annual survey on the use of advisor technology, which has been a wonderful uh, tool for discovery and uh, and vetting of of different vendors. So, um, yeah, that's uh, kind of like pro bono work that we kind of do to give back to the industry. It takes a lot of time, but Bob Veras and I, with Inside Information, have been running that survey for a number of years. I think we're almost coming on the ninth or the tenth year now. I can't remember exactly. That survey is out right now, and we would encourage everybody to just look up T three Inside Information Tech Survey and uh, contribute to it because. Everybody will have access to it when it's released. And the next report will be released at the 2024 T3 conference in January of next year. Excellent. Okay. So let's talk about the journey. Let's talk about what 
the space looked like when you got started, when you first started putting out information on this and started consulting. What did the advisor technology world look like back then? Well, it was a lot different, obviously. The wirehouses, a lot of them had proprietary stuff. I would say the same on the IBD side. Most advisors on that side didn't have a lot of choice. And in the independent space, most of it you know, was mom and pop. If you think about back to when I started, I don't think Investnet had been founded yet, right? I remember going and meeting the principals of Investnet when they were a startup. Morningstar was there. Schwab was in the space. But there was really only a handful of companies. I think at the first T3 event, you know, we probably had about 25, 30 vendors. And that was pretty much all there is. Based on our latest T3 information survey, there's over probably over 500 vendors serving the space now. I mean, a lot of them are niche products, but there's a lot out there. None yeah. of that ecosystem, ecosystem existed then. Yeah, I mean, that, uh, that survey continues to expand. I mean, notoriously, Michael Kitsis's fintech map, as I like to say, its current rate of expansion will encompass the world in a couple of years. It's, uh, there's a lot of options out there now. So well, the other thing to remember is at that time, we were still in a DOS world, right? We mm-hmm. really still were not using Windows at that time. There obviously were no iPhones, there were no iPads. It was a really different world. A lot more things were manual. Most people had dial-up internet connections if they had internet connections at all. So it was a very different world. And we'll get into that because, I mean, you've been doing this in that, in that world. You know, we've seen some huge sea changes in technology, everything from you know, the advent of desktop computers in a more user-friendly interface to cloud computing and mobile. Those have all created incredible opportunities. So, you know, I think it's safe to say that I'm guessing back then what you saw was more fundamental technologies. It was stuff like just tracking accounts and tracking clients at that point, right? Versus a lot of the more niche solutions we see now. Yeah, I think most of what was out there was in the core areas of CRM, portfolio management and financial planning. You know, there were some niche products, but if you think about it, there were no really sort of inexpensive, cost effective solutions even. For document management at that time, you had things like Paperport and and a couple of products that probably nobody would have heard of. And I remember even in those days, most of the information we had came through paper. So there was a lot of scanning going on. And I remember, you know, having scanners sent to my office and testing scanners, for example, for like weeks on end. It was a very, very different world, much more hardware centric. Yeah, so what would you say are the big kind of sea changes that happen over that time? I'm sure that you could point to things like the cloud and mobile, but I'd like to hear from you. Yeah, I mean, obviously the cloud and mobile, but even before that, right? I mean, it was user interface, sort of the advent of Windows 3. I'm not even talking about Apple really at that point, because although Apple existed, there was really no software for advisors that worked in an Apple operating system. Like I said, dial-up connections, so getting data over the internet was uh, an hours long or more processed disks, right? Every time there was an upgrade to software, people mailed you disks and you had to install whatever the new updates were on your computer. I remember getting all of the Morningstar disks and, uh, you know, having to install it on three or four computers, six or eight disks, it took hours. So just updating to the latest data, on a monthly basis or whatever it was, quarterly basis took hours. It was a lot different than it is today. Yeah, it's funny you mentioned discs. A uh, funny quick side note was at a restaurant with a colleague once and we were joking about things that people don't remember. And I made the joke about if you're young enough, you don't remember what the save icon actually meant. 
And uh, sure enough, the waitress overheard us. She's like, what does that thing mean? <laughs> well, the, you know, the other thing which we forget yeah. is client communication, right? I mean, oh. most advisors at that time didn't even have an email address at, when I first started. If they did, their clients didn't. Advisors didn't have websites. I remember going out and mm. speaking to a group of advisors and telling them they needed an email address. And a lot of them looked at me like I was crazy a few years later, telling them they needed a website. And people said, oh, this internet thing, it's never going to last. So crazy times. Amazing how many fads were not fads. Excellent. So let's talk about the net benefit. I mean, uh, from your standpoint, the last called 30 years of tech development, how has the technology that has emerged to support the advisor channel changed the way we do business? Well, it's totally changed the way we do business. And I think for the better, right? I mean, it's made advisors certainly more efficient. It's allowed them to do more for clients. It's allowed them to serve more clients. It's allowed them to give a better user experience to their employees and their end clients. But, you know, I think the flip side of what's changed is years ago, advisors used to be the gatekeepers of knowledge. So, you know, the typical advisor client didn't have a subscription to Morningstar, you know, or something like that. And now there's information available to everybody at no cost, and it's transparent. And so the role of a gatekeeper has changed, and there's much more transparency in the market than there was. And obviously, the cost of products also. If you think about 30 years ago, mutual funds, what they charged was a lot more than they charged today. ETFs weren't available. And so the cost to the end client was also a lot higher than it was. So the margins that were built into the business were higher. And that's kind of forced efficiency on us because in order to maintain your margins, you have to provide more and better services now. It's funny you use the term forced efficiency on us. I mean, I often find it funny talking to advisors complaining about that sort of stuff. It's like, well, every business is like that. Every industry is like that. We we all need to, ba- every industry basically takes advantage of technology to increase efficiency and therefore hopefully drive down costs and increase and, and has to basically fight to keep their margins where they are. And I often find it funny that people think that, that's, that we're any different. And I think those are the people who are saying that are typically the ones who don't want to adopt technology. To, I, w- to- I would definitely agree with that. The only thing I would say is it takes a little longer usually to filter into our industry simply because it's such a regulated industry. That's a fair statement. So that's why I think to a certain extent, it's kept the competitions of the Googles and the Amazons, et cetera, out of the space because they prefer to operate in a less regulated world. Yeah, that they do. So let's talk about, you know, we talked about the efficiencies and the, the and the difficulty or the need to maintain margin through expansion of different service offerings. How is this, besides lower cost, benefit the client? Well, I think what you're seeing is typical independent RIA is still probably charging some kind of fee based on either assets under management, net worth, or something like that. And, you know, I talk to advisors all the time and they say, everybody talks about margin compression. My margins haven't been compressed. I'm still charging whatever it is, 85 basis points. And I'm like, okay, that's true. You're still charging the same, but because of competition, you're offering a much broader suite of services than you used to offer in the past. And so there's a cost to providing those services. So yeah, in a sense, your margins are being compressed to some extent. But again, I think at least partially because of the regulatory environment we're in, the competition is coming from other folks in the field for the most part, as opposed to outside tech giants. And so that's protected margins a little bit. Yeah, I have this kind of working kind of theory or not theory, but this thing I keep on saying, you know, I find that 
a lot of times uh, what we hear, especially from people outside the industry or tech, let's call it technologists, engineers, executives looking at looking in that, you know, their common spin is, hey, look, you know, there's going to be less advisors because all this technology is going to allow us to do more. But the trend has been the complete opposite in the last 20 years. I mean, I just think that the the real bottleneck is never the technology. It's, it's the human sitting across from us. And there's only so many relationships an advisor can handle. Do you think that that, I mean, that's largely been the RIA trend, right? Is, is, that, right. is that fair to say? I think that's been the trend up to this point, but I do see it changing. I think mm -hmm. um, what we weren't able to do before was personalization at scale. Mm. And I think just over the last couple of years, you're really starting to see software that allows you to do that. And so I don't think that it's going to expand exponentially, but I do think that certainly over the next five years, the if you would say today, the typical advisor serving a high net worth demographic can service, let's say 80 clients, I do think that'll double or triple over the next five years, just due to mass uh, personalization. They're still going to need to meet with people. Um, but one of the things that's changed, it was going to change anyway, but it was accelerated by um, the pandemic is virtual meetings, right? Mm -hmm. And, you know, a big part of the in-person meetings is the client getting there, or the client maybe getting served a cup of coffee or something and all this stuff before they get into your office. And there's a lot of time that's, I wouldn't say a wasted time, it's personal time, but it's not doing the core things that we do. And I think when you do a virtual call with a client, you much more rapidly jump into exactly what it is that you're there for. And so you can spend more time on clients. And I think also, as you free up client time, because some of the things you're doing today manually will be automated over the next few years, the amount of time in an advisor's day that they're actually doing advisory work as opposed to back office work will shrink substantially. So it'll shrink the back office work. It'll expand the, the front end work. So fair statement. And I think that's definitely the technological trend, but I want to just kind of postulate an alternative to you. I mean, the, what we've seen in light of this is the expansion of service offerings and deeper client service offerings. Yep. Do you think that basically that is that is basically the, the counterpoint to that thesis that maybe people will continue to, to add on services? Or is there like a natural breaking point where we're just not going to be able to offer much more of value? Again, I think as things get automated, it takes a lot less time to offer some of those services. Mm. So if you think back even five or 10 years ago, very few advisors were looking at the liability side of the balance sheets, except in the ultra high net worth space. I think in a few years, everybody's going to be doing that. And I think there's already service providers out there that can automate a lot of that process and sort of give you an alert and say, hey, here's an opportunity to refinance a mortgage or get a better car loan or whatever. So you'll have bots doing a lot of the shopping for you and surfacing opportunities for you that take a lot of time right now. So I do think, yes, the service offerings will probably expand a little more, but I think the technology to automate those service offerings will expand quicker. Excellent. That's a fair statement. So let's talk about the current landscape. Let's say you, <laughs> let's imagine someone comes to you and says, you know, I'm going to build my entire tech stack from scratch as an advisor. Right. Now, what do you think are the kind of core areas need to look at in order to basically build out highly effective tech stack? Well, again, it depends. I mean, there's a lot of questions you would have to ask, right? Like who's yeah. your demographic, right? And things like that, and what's your business model. But I think at the core of pretty much every system, you're going to need a custodian. And most advisors don't think about that as a technology choice. They shop on price as opposed to technology and the full service offering, which is clearly a mistake. 
So that's a big tech decision. And then at the core of it is still going to be CRM, financial planning software, and whatever you need to manage portfolios if you're doing portfolios. So portfolio accounting and portfolio management software. Having said that, what we what our research shows is the typical advisory firm historically has well overspent on the portfolio side and underspent on the other sides. And when you think about it, our thesis is that most advisory firms add little, if any, alpha, true investment alpha. And so why is overspending on investment-related tasks and underspending on other aspects of your business that can help you grow your business? And I think you're starting to see that evolution. Folks who called themselves financial advisors 20 years ago, particularly at the IBDs and, and at the wirehouses, very few of them were doing real financial planning. And now financial planning is coming more, to, more and more to the fore. The next generation of potential clients, prospects, is much more interested in that than beating the S&P. And so I think your tech stack has to evolve along with that. Yeah, and I think that's largely the trend we've seen. I think, you know, what I, what I always say about how things have evolved from my perspective is a lot of foundational, fundamental things were taken care of over the last 20 some odd years. But in the last 10, I say the, I'm sure you'll agree with this, the prevalence of, like you said, niche solutions, but solutions that deal with not just broad planning issues, but very narrow planning issues that have been prolific. Is, is that a trend that uh, you see continuing? It is, but a lot of them get co-opted eventually. So mm -hmm. What ends up happening is you get these niche products because there's a gap in, let's call it, you know, just to use this example, comprehensive planning. But if there's really enough demand for it, it ends up getting incorporated into your core solution. So, you know, one obvious example that I can give you is social security planning, right? Mm. So 10 years ago, the coverage in typical financial planning software in social security planning was extremely light. And so you had five or six or more companies pop up that did much more in-depth social security planning. So what ends up happening? The comprehensive planning solutions say, hey, there's a lot of demand for this. We're going to build out our solution. So but there's still somewhat of a gap between what the very specialized solutions can do and the comprehensive solutions, but it's kind of the 80-20 rule, right? I mean, the comprehensive solutions now are good enough for 80% of the folks that they don't really need a special solution for that anymore. And you, you tend to see that in a lot of areas. So a lot of these niche products are good at spotting trends, or they really are such small niches that it's never going to be, you know, worth the while of the comprehensive solutions to build that out. But if there is significant demand on a large part of the population for it, it's going to get incorporated into the, uh, comprehensive solution eventually. Yeah. But I don't think that means that that niche solution goes away necessarily, right? I mean, there's still people who get off. It's just a matter of how far can they actually scale? And I think that's absolutely. Well, there's two challenges now, right? One is scale and you're right. It's very difficult for them to scale. And the other is distribution. So what you find more and more, and this is another sort of big technology trend, like the rest of the world, advisors expect everything to be easy now, right? Nobody reads a manual anymore. Nobody wants to go into training on how to use a solution. So if it's not something that integrates with your core solutions and you have to go outside of that to do something in these niche solutions, that's a roadblock, right? And that's, that's something that works against office efficiency. So they're only going to do it if they really have to do it and it adds value. 
And it's getting harder and harder for these niche solutions to get integrated into advisor workflows. And I think that's going to be an ongoing challenge for them. Excellent. So what are the bigger tech trends you see currently in the marketplace? And where do you think they're going to take us? Well, I can tell you what we're, you know, what I think are going to be some of the big trends that we're talking about at T3 next year. I think there's three and they're all, believe it or not, somewhat interrelated, even though it may not sound like it initially. One is cybersecurity. Our research showed this past year in our survey that, you know, 75, 76% of advisors that answered the survey have never engaged with a third party cyber expert. We think that's scary. AI, obviously, although it's overhyped right now, it is coming. And the third one is data. And, and they all tie in together. So you know, I think those three will be, if you want to think about it, it's sort of the three legs on a stool that will support the next generation of advisory firms. And if you don't get those three right, you're going to be at a competitive disadvantage, if not out of business. So let's let's dive into those three a little bit. Let's go, um, let's work with the kind of backwards on this. Let's go with data first. So what's the big trend in data? How is it uh, going to impact advisors going forward? Well, you know, I, I say data is kind of like digital gold, right? And there's a lot of potential money in your data, but a lot of advisors either don't own their own data or if they have somebody else custodying their data for them, it's not in a place where they can fully utilize and mine that data for dollars, if that makes sense, right? Because I hear so many times, hey, you know, I have my data at this provider and I need to get this exact report or I need to pull out some sort of statistic out of the data where you know the core data is there on the database, but it's just not in a way that can be easily reported. And so when you have something like, when you have a situation like that, it's going to force more and more firms to essentially have their own data warehouses and their own data lakes. And it's a trend we see emerging among the larger multi-billion dollar RIAs. More and more of them want more control of their data and also for interoperability between the various programs. Hey, if I can't get my financial planning software provider and my portfolio management provider to talk to each other, well, if I have the data in my central database, I can do that myself, right? And I can make it do what I need. So I think that's one big trend. And then the corollary of that is AI. So once you have the data in one place, you can do cool stuff with it, right? You can do forward-looking projections. You can sort of do analytics and say, which one of my existing clients is most likely to leave me next year? Or of these thousand prospects I have in my database, which ones should I be spending the most time on? Because either A, they're the most likely to join, or B, they have the most potential value to the firm over time. So I think those are the kind of things that we're going to be looking at over time. And in order to be able to perform a lot of those magical things with AI, you're going to absolutely need to control your own data, right? And then it's cybersecurity. So cyber is the biggest existential threat to the industry. It's pretty clear to me that most advisors are relying too heavily on third parties. And while I think almost all, 99.9% .9 of advisors want to do the right thing, I don't think there's enough education out there, number one. And number two, where it ties back to what I just said is, if you do have your own database or data lake, there's going to be more 
what's the word I want to say, not pressure, but it's going to be more incumbent on you to protect that data, right? So you're going to need to do more. There's going to be a cost involved in protecting that data. And I'm just not sure that advisors are set up to do that yet. But I think all of those things are going to become necessary. And one of the trends, one of the reasons I think you're going to continue to see M&A activity in the advisor space is because you're going to need a certain amount of scale to do this. So what I always think is, you know, you kind of get caught in the middle if you're an advisor. If you're a very small advisory firm, like a solo practitioner, you can leverage technology to run a really efficient firm and outsource all of that to a third party. And it's going to be good enough for you if you're at that size. If you're very big, you're going to be able to do all of this yourself. But if you're kind of caught in the middle, your needs are going to be more than maybe your third party providers can provide because you're going to want more to be able to compete with the big boys who have this and you're not going to be big enough to do it. So you're going to be forced basically to merge in order to get the scale so you can compete with the big boys. Yeah, I mean, that was going to be one of my questions is how does this impact smaller ones? Because the cost of running a data lake or any kind of data stewardship are not not small, let alone the expertise required. You can't just, you know, it's not like an advisor can stand this up on their own unless they actually have a pretty good history in technology. The very small advisory firms are going to outsource the whole thing, right? There'll be firms that, niche firms, right, that you were talking about earlier, that grow, that will do that for them. And again, there'll be some limitations. There'll be certain things they may want to do that they're not able to do because that provider doesn't offer that service or not offer it exactly the way they want to. But it'll be, again, kind of good enough and still put them in a very good place compared to where they are today. And the big firms will be able to customize it up the wazoo to exactly what they want. And that's the way I think it's going to be. Excellent. So yeah, the AI piece is interesting. It's funny because for years, people were saying, you know, data is the new oil. And my... My corollary now is yeah, and, and AI is basically the is the mine is the is the oil rig. And, you know that's yeah. that's how we're going to basically get be able to, to mine that stuff or to basically take advantage of it. Talking about the security side, I mean, one of the things I will say that's always surprised me about the market in general is I think that frankly I find that the security is such a secondary thought in the advisor space. And I will say, you know, having operated around the world, I think it, it's definitely a secondary thought in the U.S. more than it is in other countries. I, I find I get far more questions about security in Canada and other countries than I do in the US, where even things like sending emails with sensitive information, you know, I don't see enough said about that, quite honestly. Yeah, I mean, I think it's kind of bifurcated at the very high end, right? The big providers spend a lot of money on security, and they're really good. And advisors, I would say, lean a little too heavily onto that. And like I said, I think it's ignorance. I think there's gaps that they don't understand. It's not that they're not trying, but there are gaps, right? And Unless you have a really comprehensive policy and you have a good understanding of what you're expected to do, it's really, really difficult. And so I do think the uh, in the U.S. we need more education around that. There's a lot of regs. Advisors read the regs or it's interpreted for them by compliance consultants and they think they understand what it says. And I think they don't always really understand what it says. And a lot of these compliance consultants are not technology consultants. And so when you think about sort of the regulatory side of cyber and what's expected of you, there's sort of two sides, right? There's the policies and procedure side, which I think the compliance experts understand really well. And there's the technical control side, which they don't. And just to give you one example, most advisors don't understand the difference between the IT function and the cyber function, and they're very happy. And again, there's a lot of 
I would say, misleading advertising going on that leads them to believe that their IT person can be their cyber person. They're two separate functions, right? Mm -hmm. You need checks and balances. Who's checking the IT guy? And so until advisors understand these kind of things, you're going to continue to have bad surprises, let's put it that way. And I do think they're a target. And we're going to continue at our conference and hopefully at other places to continue to educate advisors on what needs to be done. And so they can do a better job of protecting themselves and their clients. Absolutely. And frankly, in today's world, you're one big breach away from blowing your entire reputation. Exactly. Yeah. And probably a business because I don't think most advisors can recover from a major breach. No, no. So let's go over to the topic of the day, artificial intelligence. And she said overhyped. Yeah, I got to tell you, whew, overhyped is, is an understatement. So basically, what have you seen thus far that's impressed you? And, and where do you think that you were going to see this go in the next couple of years? Well, I mean, obviously, the first thing that catches my attention is any recent conference you go to, every vendor has the term AI in their presentation. And obviously, a lot of it is fluff at this point. I would say every major provider has AI initiatives, but they may not all be ready for prime time yet. I think there are a few firms that are starting to bring things to the marketplace or have brought things to the marketplace with AI that are noteworthy. FP Alpha is certainly one of them. Mm -hmm. FMG Suites just announced something around AI. Salesforce has Einstein that they've been pushing for a few years that claims to do certain things. So you're starting to see it break into the space. But, you know, we're in the very, very, very early stages of what AI is going to do and can do. There are, you know, I think there are some very simple things it can do for advisory firms today, which they're probably not taking advantage of. So, you know, if you write blog posts, I think it can help you create a first draft of a blog post. I wouldn't let it write one for you. I think very soon it'll be writing email replies for you to a lot of what I would call sort of standard requests. Um, (laughs) I think it'll, like I said, be proactively suggesting things like next best action for an advisor to take. And all of these things are starting in the very early stages to come to market, but I'm not sure they're all fine-tuned, let's put it that way, quite yet. Yeah, it's, I mean, when ChatGPT captured everyone's imagination on generative AI, it set up a new supernova of artificial intelligence plays. And it's, it's funny, I think a lot of these, what I've seen have been solutions looking for problems. You know, like, oh, I can now type in a command to do this. Well, I mean, hold on. That was a two button click exercise before. It's going to well, take me longer to type it in. I mean, in all fairness, that. there are certain things that it's doing already that advisors may not see that actually support advisors. So, you know, I've talked to a number of programmers who said basic code it can already write. And so on the back end, as people are developing software for advisors, they're already using this to speed up the development of new code. And I think while that doesn't get talked about at all, it's something that's holding the cost of software down for advisors. And so that's a good thing. So I do think there are discrete areas where it's already helping and it's only going to get better. But until you see sort of generational change in AI, it's going to take a little while in our industry, but it's coming. Oh, it's definitely coming. I mean, I think everyone had to stop and ask themselves how we're going to use this form of technology here. And and to your to your point, you're absolutely right. I mean, I have many friends who are developers, and the amount of time that they're saving now in optimizing code, just right. by popping it in, is 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 insane. 
And we already had a lot of progress on on no-code solutions. I just see this as expediting it to the nth degree now. So it'd be fascinating. But it's... um, I mean, another place where I think you're going to see it early on, and you're starting to see it already, both on the good and the bad side, is cybersecurity, right? I mean, AI can proactively identify threats, but the bad guys are also using it to create new threats. And so it'll be interesting to see how that develops. Yeah, that's always been the uh, the trend as new technology comes out, both the good and the bad guys go to work on using it because I like to say in presentations, uh, there is, technology doesn't have ethics. We impart our ethics upon it. Yeah, yeah. So that's great. So let's talk a little bit about um, basically the resources that you make available to people. So you get the T3 report. Let's talk a little bit about that before we move on to the conference and how valuable that is. Yeah, sure. So I started doing surveys around, well, I think it was around 2008 with uh, Financial Planning Magazine. And again, the idea was to provide the general public with an idea of what software certain cohorts are using and also how happy they were with that software, right? So mm-hmm. pretty much answers the survey three questions. It, it answers who's using what in a various space, right? Financial planning software and about 50 other types of software by market share and by satisfaction. And then we also ask, what are you thinking about using next year? So we can spot some changes early on on what the trends are. Are people going to continue to purchase what they've been purchasing? Or is there something new or are there changes going on in these various um, demographics and verticals? And so, like I said, we have a few sponsors for that survey, but we make it available to everybody at no charge. And to some extent, we also do a deeper dive on on a few of the main verticals and say, are the differentiators between what true independents use versus what the IBD community uses versus what the PFP division of the AICPA is using and things like that. So. And large and small, you know, a larger firm is using different software than smaller firms. And if so, why? So it is the most comprehensive survey in the industry that I know of. And it's all based on what actual users tell us. Excellent. I'll tell you the the most interesting thing for me about that survey is comparing year to year is looking yeah. at the trends over time. Because, you know, if I would, I would challenge anyone to go dig up the oldest one they can find and compare it to the most recent one, you'll see some very big changes over that period of time. And you'll, you know, if you look, if you pay attention, you can see those trends emerging quite quickly. Yep, I agree. I think we can often spot emerging trends just by looking at the data. Yeah, and the satisfaction one's interesting because I think in particular there too is that I think uh, people are happy until they know an alternative. And yep. uh, I think when those alternatives have presented themselves, suddenly the satisfaction rates trend to trend downward. <laughs> so it's interesting to see. Yeah, it's really funny. When people kind of live in a vacuum and they don't have alternatives, satisfaction tends to be higher because they don't know what they're missing. Like years and years ago, probably even before we started our survey, I saw some survey. And at that time, it was rating a lot of the broker-dealer technology relatively high. And I was familiar with a lot of this technology, and I didn't think it was very good. And I was like, how could this be? How could this be? And then I realized they were a captive audience, right? The only conference they probably went to was their broker-dealers conference. They didn't know other things existed. So as long as every year it got a little bit better than it was the previous year, people were pretty satisfied because they didn't know there was an alternative. And if you look at it right now at cyber, that's a really interesting one to look at in our survey. Generally speaking, the rankings are higher than I would think they should be because I know there's gaps. But again, people don't know what they don't know. And so, hey, I haven't been hacked yet, so my software must be good, right? And they give it a high ranking, but it doesn't really make sense to me. Yeah, so you know, we try and identify some of those things um, when we put our commentary in there. 
And that's what the commentary is for to kind of uncover some of those things that may not be obvious to the casual observer, so to speak. Yeah. I mean, even, even when you are satisfied, sometimes just, and it's rare that you get some sort of almost paradigm shifting technology that makes you look at it a different way. And you suddenly realize, oh my goodness, what I was really happy with before can't touch what I could do now. Right. So it's, yeah, yeah ignorance is bliss. <laughs> Right. So uh, let's talk about the conference. So 20th anniversary coming up in January, January yep. 22nd to 25th in Vegas. Tell us about uh, how this came to be and, and how where it's at now and what you hope to accomplish with it. Well, like I said, we started it a long time ago because we felt that there wasn't enough attention being paid to advisor technology. There were a lot of generalist conferences in the industry where, you know, maybe there was one session on technology and the people presenting it probably were not people I would trust to listen to. And so we thought we really needed a, a separate conference with experts that could talk about technology. And at the first one, I would say there were probably about 100 advisors there and maybe, you know, 50 vendors, so 150 people. I think it was 135 in total at the first mm -hmm. one. And now we're approaching like 1,000 people at the conference. And so I definitely think there's a need for it. I wish more advisors understood that they need to stay on the on top of the te technology. It's a conference where you can come for a few days, basically have conversations with close to 100 vendors. Every major expert in the United States on technology is there. And you can also network um, with your colleagues and hear what they're doing. So it's tech forward firms that tend to come. A lot of the major announcements of the roadmaps for the major tech vendors take place at T3 every year. And there is nothing else like it in the industry. So I would encourage everybody to come because I just think you need to. You know, we used to tell people years ago, you need to review your tech stack once every three years. And then it was once every two years. Now, at least you need to do a basic review of your tech stack every year because the pace of technology is accelerating. And I just think even 12 months from now, there's going to be some major changes, certainly in the areas of things like AI, big data, cybersecurity. And if you're not on top of this, you're falling behind. And so if you want to continue to compete with the best of the best, you've got to be part of the conversation. Well, that's just it. And yeah, the uh, it's funny you say at least once a year, I feel like if I take a vacation for a month, I suddenly miss five big announcements. But uh, I'm a little yeah, but We're embedded in this stuff every day. I don't think it's it's reasonable. I mean, look, I tell every advisor, advisory firm that I consult with, you should have somebody that that's their job to stay up on all of the latest trends in technology and bring it to the principal's attention if it's not a principal when something substantial happens. But as a firm, just like you review employee performance and a ton of other things every year, your marketing plan for the next year, et cetera, you should have a quick review, at least of all our technology and say, hey, does this still serve us? Does this still serve our clients? To your point, is there something new and better that's really substantial enough that it will cause me to change whatever I'm using right now? Absolutely. Well, Joel, this has been fascinating. Thank you so much for taking the time and sharing your journey and all the stuff that you uh, you do. And uh, I'll probably be seeing you in January, although you'll be busy. <laughs> so I'll leave you to it. But otherwise, uh, yeah, thank you so much. Yeah, I would just encourage everybody to go to t3conferences.com. Mm -hmm. and sign up for the conference today. I can guarantee you it's going to be one of our best ever. We're going to have a great lineup, major speakers. One of the things that I think is undervalued is you get to talk at T3 as opposed mm -hmm. to other conferences to the actual people who develop the software. So you're not talking to salespeople necessarily. You actually get to talk to the developers and the principals of the company and you can 
give them your feedback. And I think it's incredibly important. Every single vendor that I know wants that kind of feedback and it helps them make their products better. So the advisor community can really do more to help themselves by providing that feedback to their vendors, either at T3 or elsewhere. I hear you. And we'll be sure to include that link in the show notes for anyone who's interested. And uh, yeah, I wish you all the best of luck with it. Thanks a lot. It's been a pleasure chatting with you. So that was today's episode with Joel Bruckenstein. Hope you found that informative, uh, the the journey through the history of advisor technology and where it's going tomorrow. And uh, thank you for sticking around for 300 episodes if you've been so bold as to listen to them all. If you have, uh, I'd love to hear from you. As always, if you enjoyed this podcast, please leave a review on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Until next time, take care. This podcast was brought to you by Woodgate Financial, an award-winning financial planning firm catering to high net worth individuals and their families. To learn more, go to woodgate.com. You can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, and Google Play, or find more episodes at jasonperera.ca.